There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Windy, and I'm joined by my sidekick and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Bardi. Hello, Windy. And our tactics guy and the Surge Aurier cheerleader, <laughs> Nathan A. Clark. Hello, Nathan. <laughs> Hello, Windy. And and our coaching guy, Harry Brooks. Hello, Harry. <laughs> Hello, mate. How you doing? Very well, Harry. Good to have you back. Um, no, most people you. know who Harry is, I think, because he's been on The Extra Inch. Um, God, must be nearly a year ago now, I would have thought. Some, something like that. He's also recently uh, appeared a couple of times on The Fighting Cock as well. Um, he's an ex-sub, I'm happy to say. But Harry, um, just to just to sort of refresh people's memories, just could you give a, a brief background to, to what you do? Yeah, so I train and work with professional and academy footballers in the UK and Europe. That can be through coaching, um, analysis. It can be through even doing transfers and helping them with contract negotiations and looking um, after them off the pitch. Um, that's the main thing I do that people seem to be interested in. I do about a million other things in football as well. Uh, but that seems to be the thing that most people seem to be interested in. So, um, yeah, basically involved in professional football. And despite despite the pandemic, you kept yourself busy. So we're very grateful to have you this evening for uh, pleasure. What, what, what promises to be a very interesting podcast. Um, <laughs> Harry, I've got a couple of initial questions for you. Yep. Just to get you warmed up, this one was from Jace Tucker. Jace says, what has been your favourite result of the season so far and why? And what performances have stood out the most? I would say the answer to both of those has to be the Man City one, purely because it really did surprise me. I didn't think that Spurs were going to look that defensively compact, um, that structured. A lot of people have been praising Spurs' defensive play this year. I actually was of a different opinion. I thought that teams found it a bit too easy to enter the final third. I thought that when they did enter the final third, that the pressure on the ball and the man just wasn't wasn't enough. It was five yards away rather than two or three yards away. Um, and I thought it was more by chance that we hadn't yet conceded big chances or goals. Um, and I thought a team like Man City, I thought that there's no way they're going to let you get away with that. And they have plays that excel at 1v1s and standing you up and Spurs defenders, they don't really like that kind of play. 
Um, so I thought that City would just sort of toy with us and it would be quite a comfortable 2-0, maybe even 3-0. But fair play to Spurs. They were compact. They were organised. They dealt with everything City had. And I didn't think the City actually looked that threatening. They got into the final third. But this time I thought there was appropriate pressure on the ball and the man. Um, and they were clinical on the counter of Spurs, you know. And it wasn't just breaking and seeing what happens. It felt really coordinated. It felt the, mm. the moves really felt like there was a thought behind it rather than just, oh, there's space. Let's go into that. Um, so no, I thought that was an exceptional performance, really good performance. And uh, yeah, that was probably the game that really convinced me, you know what, maybe there is a title uh, challenge on, maybe. <laughs> oh, OK, let's start off with some optimism. I like it. Um, and one more question before we get stuck into um, some other stuff. This one is from Micah Kellner. Micah says, can you coach the agenda Nathan Clark has against Jose out of his <laughs> podcast game? Or is it time to move old Nathan onto Milan? <laughs> that's why harry's here on a trial to replace me you see <laughs> uh no i don't I, listen i think people 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 everyone sees the game in a different way and that's what's brilliant about it as well um nathan and you guys or whoever is completely well within their right to not see football in the way that Mourinho sees football and that's completely fine i personally and i guess it's through coaching and working with these players i'm a bit more oh, Cold-blooded, I would say, it's probably the right way to describe it, more so than a fan. Um, and for me, you do get that vibe of, um, it's like, well, that's what works. That's what it is. Forget about the the feelings around it and the nuance around it. Is that, is that the right way to do it? Um, and then that's that. So I completely understand why people might be abrupt to, to being on Jose's side. You know, Spurs have, have always had a history of, you know, of not quite succeeding, but at least they've always had the flair players. They've had the excitement. And I completely understand fans not feeling comfortable with this side of, of it. Um, but what I'll say about you guys is I've never felt that you guys was ever... I do think there's a lot of people that is an agenda. I never felt that way with you guys. I felt you were always, whenever I've listened to obviously your podcast and Nathan and you and you know both of you, that it was always reasoned and balanced. And you know you would say what was good and what was bad. And by no means has Jose Mourinho's tenure been perfect so far, not by any stretch. So um, no, I don't think there has been any agenda from any of you three, to be honest. From my personal opinion, I do believe there are agendas out there. Uh, people that will just hate Mourinho no matter what. And, you know, that's fine. You're allowed to be that person as a fan. But I've never got that feeling from you guys. Um, yeah, so, no, I don't think there is an agenda to coach out. I wasn't... That was that was really nice because we didn't prep that at all. And it sounds like you've just come on and given an, an impassioned defense of, of the extra inch. Oh, it's, um, it's, yeah. no, it's, it's, it's true. I promise you. Um, I have no idea what questions are coming here. So, no doubt I'll get... I'll get stuck because I got stuck down the fighting cock. So I'm definitely going to get, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not as uh, stuck today. <laughs> nice one, Harry. Thank you, mate. Um, we got another question. I'm going to direct this one to Bardi because it, it seems so fitting. Uh, this was from Joe August, who's an ex-sub. He says, after yesterday's news at the time of writing of Maradona's passing, would it be possible to talk about him in an upcoming pod? Of course, none of us saw him live, but I think Nathan and Bardi will have a better understanding of him than an American who first watched the sport during Germany in 2006. Um, Bardi, the, the platform is, is yours, really. Say some nice things about Maradona. I mean, there is um, the conversation about Maradona is always a little bit skewed because you have Maradona, the player, and then you have everything else that happened like in his personal life. But Maradona, the player, for me, is somebody that I kind of grew up with. Now, I didn't watch him live. I was too young for 86 and I was too young for for everything that he really did at Napoli. My first um, first viewing of Maradona live was during the 1990 World Cup where he was brilliant 
but um, he wasn't quite at the same level. Um, one of my um, favourite memories of Maradona in that World Cup was during the semi-final, we were at my uh, my cousin's house, and my auntie, who has no no love of football, nothing, she stood up during the, during the semi-final with a slice of pizza in her hand, and she used some some language, which I didn't know, I was nine years old, but she used some really foul Italian language. <laughs> so, so much so that the rest of my family stopped turned and like looked at her and said like what are you saying and she had to apologize that's how much he got under this under the skin of the of the italians so maradona the the guy from the 80s was something that i went back to to revisit and in my youth there were three vhs videos which really sculpted my kind of how i looked at football one was the 1988-89 video compilation of of tottenham's season which they finished like eighth and didn't do anything but we had chris waddle in the team and the other two were the the 1986 film hero which is the the fifa the official fifa film of the 1986 world cup and you have to go back and watch that it's got michael kane doing the narration and it's Really cheesy 80s music, really cheesy 80s graphics, but that's Maradona in his peak. And you see him running along this pitch in the, at the Azteca and the ball is bouncing everywhere because the pitch was terrible. I was listening to a podcast the other day with um, um, Thomas Berthold, He and he was talking, he, he played in that final against Maradona in 86. And he says the pitch was awful. It was like patches of carpet. So for the goals and the performances that Maradona put on that pitch back then, it was outstanding it's like they play these days on on snooker tables but the, his ability to control the ball and run and run with it was was unparalleled and I, I don't think we we see that in modern in today's game which is why for me Maradona is is the greatest of all time the other video was 110 goals of the Serie A season 88-89 so you could see I got my there must have been like a sale at Woolworths or something <laughs> and, my, and my family just got me these three videos and Napoli finished second that season to the amazing an inter team but every now and then you'd clip to Napoli and you'd see the great goals that Napoli scored and Maradona was at the heart of it and it was just something about the way he played and the way he moved uh, that he was the original rags to riches story we talk about Harry Kane you know Tottenham boy but this is this is a child um, that came from absolutely nothing playing on mud pitches who worked his way up into being the greatest and I think the problem with Maradona is he never had the support. He never had the network around him. And you read his um, autobiography and you're reading it and you're going, my God, the people around you, they're just sucking everything out of you, not giving you anything back and just leading you down a dark path, which ultimately probably led to his, 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 his death at only 60 years old. So there is there is that great footballer. There is also the failed brilliant person as well that he made some bad choices. But he just he's the way he kicked the ball summed up everything. He was a beautiful, incredible player. And when I heard about his passing, I was I was I was sad. I was really, really sad. It 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 shook me, even though I haven't really thought about Maradona in the last few years because I don't like the version that he became a bit like Gaza, you know, where if I go back and I think about Maradona, I call him the greatest player. If I think about Gaza, I think about this amazing player. I try not to think of them getting up. Sometimes you wish the film just ended when they were like, when they retired, but yeah, I've gone on a little bit. I'm sorry, but yeah, uh, he meant a lot to me and he was a brilliant player. Mate, nothing to apologize for. That was um, beautifully said, beautifully said. And, you know, 
far more personal than anything the rest of us could have mustered. So, so appreciate it. Um, let's, let's get stuck into the Chelsea game because there's loads to talk about. And we'll start off where we always do with the team selection. And I thought once again, there, there wasn't too many, there weren't too many surprises this time around. Bergwijn kept his place and Joe Roden came in for Alderweireld. Um, I think there are two players we need to talk about a little bit in relation to that. But let's start off with with Bergvine because having played so well in midweek, some people thought that Delhi might even get a start. So we had a question, we had a couple of questions on Delhi. Uh, Keith Weichel says, "Is it possible that Delhi's qualities in place of Bergvine's simultaneously wins us and loses us that match on Sunday? Bergvine was great defensively, worked hard, and helped reduce the traffic, but was ultimately toothless in attack. A few of those balls put into Bergvine, if they'd been hit on the first or second touch, looked like Delhi's sweet spot." And similarly, Sam Ricketts said, how much would Delhi have helped in the game? I feel like we really missed him. And at least in an, an informed Delhi could have had a great game. He would have given us some creativity, flair and unpredictability in an otherwise very structured game. So what do you think of um, Bergvine's performance? Let's start with Harry. Um, well, you'll be interested, actually. When he played against Man City, I personally thought he looked a lot lighter um, and leaner. Um, so I actually messaged uh, the trainer, um, his strength and conditioning coach, um, asking, you know, as he as he cut down, as he lost muscle weight, and um, he said, yes, he has. He's currently at his uh, premium body composition, I think he called it, um, which is excellent. Um, and I thought he looked like that, and I thought he looked a bit more springy, a bit more light on the feet. Um, I thought he could get. It looked like he'd get away easier, um, which is excellent because technically he's fantastic. His game intelligence is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I thought we saw that against Chelsea. I thought it was just. Just thought it was just one of those things where another day maybe he does produce that final pass mm. or that final shot. I didn't think it was down to a lack of quality. Mm. Um, so no, I thought that, okay, he wasn't amazing against Chelsea. I thought it was a nearly very good performance, nearly very good. But he certainly helped um, the side with the disciplined nature. He certainly helped Spurs get the ball into the final third quite a few times in the first half, which was vital. Um, so the end product wasn't quite there. Um, and on another day it could have been I thought that was generally the case for, for the whole Spurs team yesterday it just looked like the final pass the final decision just wasn't quite there whereas it was against Man City um, and then in the second half it was very clear what the tactics were and I don't have too much of an issue with that um, so no I don't think that Deli Alli um, was a change that I think um, I would have made even with hindsight um, because if you play Deli Alli for me what then happens is a game when you must not lose it can really flip either way now you do lose that structure. You do lose that discipline. And it was very clear the tactics were, no, we cannot give it. We can't leave anything to chance here. Um, so, no, I, as good as Delielli was, I don't think that was the game to bring him back in at all. Um, I thought Bogon was OK. Yeah, I agree. I like the way you characterise him as well. I think he's a very tactically astute player, which I guess you expect from from a player that comes through a youth system in in Netherlands. That's, that's quite typical of of players who've been trained in that way. I would say he's also immaculate technically. Again, that's typical of players coming through in those systems. Um, I, I like the way you you say the, the way he gets away from players. He's kind of got this kind of wriggling motion because he's mm. got quite a squat close to. Yeah. Uh, low centre of gravity hasn't he and, and he's got this kind of wiggling motion where he, he somehow squirms out of um, pressure situations and then bursts into space and he's got a nice burst of acceler- acceleration on him as well I really like Bergwijn I'm, I, I'm pleased to see him back in the team and playing well mm-hmm. and I, I thought he had a decent game um, Nathan tactically let's, let's sort of dissect this a little bit first half bit of a stalemate second half Chelsea seemed to amp it up and we didn't match them for, for much of it I would say what did you make of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of a lot to unpack, isn't there? Um, 
So we set up in a very specific way against City that I thought would be a one-off. Um, and it kind of, it reminded me of a game several seasons ago where we played against uh, Tony Pulis's West Brom, right? Uh, where a big part of our tactical structure at the time was the use of Ericsson and Deli Alley in these sort of free attacking roles and then picking up in space. And West Brom man-marked those two players, I think, with their full-backs. I can't, it was several seasons ago, and it really shut down our game. And I thought we'd done something sort of quite similar here, where Sissoko and Hoybier man-marked City's number eights, um, especially as they moved into the channel, mm. where we sort of we had this sort of temporary back six situation uh, with with those two midfielders dropping in, and then the chain of that be, is that our attacking midfield three drop into a sort of a deep midfield position and and become the uh, the the second line there. Um, yeah, and again, I, I thought that that would be just for that one specific game, but that's what we showcased very similarly again against Chelsea, who who attacked in not dissimilar patterns. Um, now, obviously, for City. Their widest players are their wingers, whereas for Chelsea, their widest players are their fullbacks or wingbacks, and they move attacking midfielders inside, etc. So things are slightly different, um, but it's it's defending defending those those five lines essentially. Um, in the second half, uh, Chelsea began to put together a few ideas using, uh, especially Mason Mount, but using central midfielders to sort of. Uh, move into the space that is left by Sissoko and Hoybier retreating. Now that space isn't completely vacated because Ndombele and then later Lo Celso sort of tracks runs into that space and the wingers drop in occasionally when necessary and cover things in that kind of way. Um, but essentially at that point you're down to being consistently reliant on a more attacking player being switched on to the danger again and again and again. And over the course of 45 minutes, that's going to lapse a few times. So Chelsea started to have some success in that direction. Um, but it wasn't a complete turn of the tables. They didn't, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't score, <laughs> but they also didn't like massacre us on, on chances in the second half. Um, it does, looking forward already, it does sort of slightly concern me that like, I suspect that's likely how we're going to sit up against Arsenal. Um, and I feel like there are a lot of ways in which that makes sense to play against Arsenal because, again, a team who attack across those five verticals, who like to play in patterns, who like to control a lot of the ball. And if you look at sort of things on like a, um, like a meta tactical level, right? Arsenal, a team who are having a issue with creating chances from lengthy possession spells. Arsenal team who aren't turning over the ball lots. Arsenal a team who have shown some vulnerabilities on the counter but are having trouble creating chances up against Mourinho's low block Tottenham. So much of that plays into our hands. But I feel like the thing is that over the last two games... Um, we've sort of shown our hand a little bit and it's been really successful for us because we've come away with four points from two really tough mm -hmm. games. But mm -hmm. I'm slightly worried that your mate Arteta will, uh, will we go away. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, he'll get his homework in and, and Arsenal will come prepared with some sort of deeper runner combination. So I'm slightly worried about that going forward in, into that game um, and, and how we might approach that. But it's, it's been an interesting run. It's sort of like, so again, to go back uh, in time again, Mourinho sort of became a little bit uh, notorious for his 6-3-1 defensive shape uh, with Chelsea and then with United as well. Um, 
but it was quite different because in in that situation it, for those two teams what would happen is the wingers would become wing backs and the full back, full backs would move narrow um whereas in this case our full backs remain wide and our central midfielders drop into the channels um so i'm i'm curious about the differences there i'm i'm struggling to work out what the differences are defensively and why that might work better out of possession but I think it's really interesting when we counter, although we didn't do successfully against Chelsea, they did a good job of, of stifling our counters. They did a good job of not overcommitting generally. Um, but, but when you win the ball and you're deep in your own defensive thirds and you've got six players back, wh- who is that ball falling to? And if it's your, if your wingers are all the way over by your own corner flags, I think it'd be really hard to counter. But when your wingers are inside narrow and it's Ndombele and Sun and Bergvine, getting that second ball and running into space i think i think the mate the change is mainly about having simply the right players to counterattack with um yeah it'd be, again it'll be interesting to see how we continue to use that over that stretch and, and how teams prepare for it i was about to say something very similar i think this is purely because he knows that we need to have son yeah. as high up the pitch as possible and in many ways the roles that Bier and sissoko are playing in in these two games at least aren't really about getting the ball forward. That's left to Ndombele, to Kane. You know, obviously someone needs to give the ball to Ndombele and Kane, but it doesn't matter so much that Sissoko and Hoibier have dropped quite so deep. It's uh, it's not having an impact. Um, really, really interesting stuff, Nathan. Um, Bardi, uh, Harry's already spoken about the the fact that the, the managers were um, quite risk-averse. So we had a question from uh, VIP Nobody who says, what did you think of the game? Was it a good result for Spurs? Both teams have great attacking potential. Do you think both coaches are happy not to concede a goal and to get a point? I mean, you know, the, the legendary Italian writer Gianni Brera <laughs> said the perfect game would finish 0-0. Uh, no mistakes. And there were no mistakes. Um, mm. la- last week, last week we spoke about Lampard and whether or not he would switch, whether or not Jose would get in his head. And I was, I was kind of happy with his lineup because he played Kante, who nullified Kane, which is fine. But then, you know, but then they they had nothing else in midfield. Had they played Jorginho, Kante, and I'm not a fan of Mount. I thought Mount, other than the shot, I, I didn't think he did too much. But had they played Jorginho, I think we might have struggled a bit more because I think he's better on the ball and he 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 can he can switch the play a bit better. I thought Lampard was a little bit timid. I thought Jose played a, a perfect Jose game, and then it got to the point 60 minutes in where we were like, fine, as you said, four points from these tough games is good for us. We remain top of the league. It wasn't like it was um, two points dropped where Liverpool had dropped points and then we were up against Fulham, for example, and we threw away two points. He'll see this as one point gained at a difficult place where many others of the top, top four, top four or five teams might not get a point there. So I think Spurs are happy. I think Lampard probably ruined the fact that he didn't go for it. I thought I thought the game was there for him if he pushed. But then also I thought similarly the game was there for us. Bergvine was good in the first 45 minutes. But then as the game wore on, I think we needed something different there. Even even Lucas, I thought, might have offered us something different, a little bit of unpredictability. But Jose got his point. That's what he wanted. And I, I'm happy. I'm happy with that point. I think that point will serve us well in the future. Yeah, I, I think um, Jose will be very happy to have come away with a point and... That, I think that's a completely reasonable stance to take. A point at Chelsea 
totally fine. It's a, that's a good result. It's a good result. Mm. The only thing that disappoints me is I was really pleasantly surprised at half time by the first half performance. I, I thought this is going pretty well. You know, Chelsea are a good team, but we're also a really good team. And we're kind of, it wasn't the most exciting game, but there was a back and forth to it, wasn't there? It felt like we were just jabbing at each other. No mm. one was going for the knockout punch yet, but they were just feeding each other out. And just sort of get into grips of which what, what the opposition manager had to offer, and then that seemed to stop in the second half, and we we just sort of seemed to settle and, and just hope for the best. And Harry, were you were you slightly disappointed that we didn't try and push on a bit more in the second half? I think it was. I thought the first half, um, Jose would have been happier than Frank Lampard um, from what the way the game was going in terms of tactics and setting up against each other. You can see that it was two teams that had really set up, like Bardi said, to really counteract each other and stop the other one playing. Um, mm. And it was going to be who blinks first. And I think that Lampard, in terms of going for it, maybe probably just up the up the tempo just a tad doing the change that Nathan said. Um, and I think that Spurs were, they weren't willing to to take that risk to leave themselves open to Chelsea's increasing pressure. Um, because I think a point away for Spurs is better for them than it is for Chelsea. And I think, again, Jose, he's a master at knowing how to win a league without necessarily being the swashbuckling team that dominates everyone. Jose can see the long game. Jose looks at, you can see that Jose is a kind of manager, looks at the fixtures ahead and thinks, right, well, where are the good points going to come from? And he definitely looked at this game and thought, right, if we can get a win, fantastic. It's a great result. Um, but make sure we don't lose. And if you do open yourselves up, the later the game goes on, the more you do leave yourself open to to conceding and a loss would obviously have been a disaster. So I don't have a problem with it for this game um, because, again, if you're going to, if you are talking about winning the league, get points away to your potential rivals. That's a very, very good result. Um, it's a good result if they beat Arsenal next week. Mm-hmm. If they mm-hmm. don't beat Arsenal next week, it turns into a, oh, OK, right. It could have maybe, we, we would have liked to have got one of the wins out of these two games. Um so I don't have a problem with it. I really don't. And sometimes also people need to remember um, they're very good sides, Chelsea and Spurs. You know, these are these are two top of the table Premier League teams. It's not always easy to to get out against them and to break into them and to create chances. It's it's easier said than done. It's very well saying, well, I would have done this and they should have yeah. opened themselves up more. Sometimes it isn't as simple as that. You know, it's 11 men on a pitch. It's football at a very, very high level. Sometimes you can try all you want and it just isn't there, that game. Anything can happen. Um, it's a game of free. Anybody can win. So, um, yes, okay, maybe they could have taken a bit more risk, but... I do think that Jose thought that, you know what, we will still get one or two chances this half and I trust my players to to take that. And it didn't happen. But um, that's just one of those things, I think. It's not something that I, I'm too upset about. Fair enough, fair enough. I, I actually thought, um, even from a sort of defensive tactical stance, I, I thought that maybe if we'd attempted a few more counterattacks, it might have helped because it would have stopped Chelsea being able to commit so many players forward. Um, I, I must admit... In that second half, I just thought this is Chelsea's goal. There's goals coming now. Like they just seem to be building ahead of steam, and it wasn't like they were creating chance after chance. Although I do think they had some decent chances throughout the game, I felt worried. Whereas I did not have any fear in the City game. Second half, I was <laughs> confident. I was, was the I was, exact opposite. Really, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were calm in this one. Mm. Um, having said that, most of their chances and Bardi said there were no mistakes. I felt most of their chances did come from mistakes, and I, I think. 
Joe Roden deserves a lot of praise for his performance uh, in terms of his his bravery on the ball, and he he did some good things. He did some he did some really good interceptions, but most of Chelsea's good chances came through mistakes from Joe Roden. If we, if we look at it in the cold light of day, and that seems like a really harsh assessment of his of his Spurs full Spurs debut, and I, I certainly don't want to get at Joe Roden because this was a really tough match to start. It like it's a baptism of fire, as mm. as they say. You don't really want to be playing up against up against Abraham and and Werner and and Ziyech in, in your first match. Um, nevertheless, uh, Abraham got the better of him for a few crosses and would have been disappointed not to have converted one. He was at fault for the, the Werner goal, which was ruled out for a, a marginal offside. And wait, then no, wait, 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 wait. I got, I got an issue with this. It's offside. You know, like Sky was saying, dis, a disallowed goal. It's, a disallowed goal. It's, it's offside. It's not marginal, Wendy. It's offside is offside. A good defensive line caught him out. Okay, but Roden, Roden, yeah, fair enough. But Roden yeah, made a mistake yeah. in the in the build up, um, and and then the Giroud chance also came through a through a Roden mistake as well. The one where he he mishit his um, his lob attempt. Um, we had a couple of questions about Roden. They're mainly around, interestingly, the positioning. So Fergus McKee says, with Dyer playing on the left and Roden on the right, are inverted centre backs a thing, or is Jose bringing a tactical evolution to the game? In all seriousness, is there actually a tactical benefit from doing this? And Guy Shelton asked a similar question along those lines. Um, Nathan, what do you think about the the positioning of Dyer and uh, Roden? Yes, we touched on this on. The, oh wait, hang on. Did we touch on this on the the X subs pod and not the main one? I forget. Uh, I forget. Okay. Well, this, just this to... is the problem with the ex subs pod, isn't it? We don't know what we've said. <laughs> uh, I mean, okay. Basically, I think that long term, Roden will move over to the left uh, because, firstly, they're both right footed, so there's there's not is there's not we're not playing inverted centre back. Um, the left sided role is the more technically demanding, and I think the Roden has the much higher technical ceiling. Yeah. Um, but for the time. Eric Dyer's experience and and sort of uh, run of games and and everything else uh, makes him better equipped to deal with a more challenging role. A few weeks down the line, if Roden's getting regular game time, if he's settling in, if he's impressing, if he's doing well, and I can see them switching round uh, because Roden's better with the ball at his feet. Harry went into great detail with with why he's he's strong with the, with the ball at his feet on the left hand side. Um, so I think that's something that we'll see eventually, but I also think it makes complete sense that it would be this way around for now. Yeah, I think that's the pragmatic. That's the pragmatic approach, isn't it? Um, similarly, Shyster Jose on Twitter says, "Would Pochettino have picked Davidson over Roden for this game?" Um, Harry, what did you think of that? How did you How did you think Roden did? I thought it was overall a performance from someone that you can tell is going to offer a lot. Mm-hmm. But I honestly think that it was just first game nerves. I really yeah. do believe that. Mm. Um, I actually don't have a problem with the, how he dealt with crosses. I thought he dealt with Tammy's um, the crossing to Tammy very well. There's two I can remember where Tammy got ahead of him, but sometimes that's going to be the, that, that sometimes happen when the striker Abraham's have, a good striker, right? When a striker is tall and as powerful and as good as Abraham gets a run across you, you can't always get there first. So make sure you do everything you can to make sure he doesn't get a clean connection and. Abraham didn't get a clean connection because of Roden. He put on enough pressure to force him to be off balance and to skew off his head, etc. So, um, yeah, I, Roden's major issues in the game for me were just a bit lack of hesitancy. Um, he wasn't assertive on the ball like we know he can be, um, probably because he's a player that on the ball 
can be seen as a risk taker. I don't think it is risk taking, but he's someone that likes to be on the ball. He likes to carry it out. He backs his passing. And you just saw the odd time, maybe in his head he was thinking, should I do this? Should I do this? And the second that hesitancy is there, you're in trouble. If you're going to do it, you have to be assertive with it. And he'll learn that. That will come with time. Um, you know, if you're not going to do it, don't do it. But be assertive early. And you just thought the odd time, I, mean, I think that's where the Werner with this goal came from, wasn't it? It was just, you could see he wanted to do that pass, but he just second-guessed himself. Don't do that. Be assertive. Trust mm-hmm. yourself. If you're not going to do it, don't do it. But if you are, back yourself. Um, otherwise, that will happen. Um, and it was just a few times when I thought maybe he, like, you know, stabbed passes, hit the top of the ball a bit, um, bit of a technical thing. Um, didn't cause major issues, but you just thought it was something maybe just needed to relax a bit more and trust his game a bit more. But overall, you saw a player there that is going to offer a lot. I really do believe that. Um, so, no, I was happy with his performance. It was definitely a performance where, OK, you're a bit nervous. Let's just make sure that the team gets through it without any disaster happening, which nearly did happen, hmm. but it did. So overall, positive first performance. He'll learn from those mistakes. He'll feel more comfortable immediately after that. He will. Um, so no, I was I was um, happy with his game overall. Um, but yeah. Has anyone picked up, has we had any news about when now the Verald is likely to be back? Has anyone heard anything? Uh, Mid-December. Okay. Yeah, it seems like the club are trying to play it down a little bit. Okay. I mean, you know, as, as much as we don't want to lose out of Verald, I don't mind seeing Roden get a run of games, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't sweat the way other people did when out of our old went down. Um, yes, it's not ideal, but I think that when when you are a defensive unit that sits five or ten yards deeper and defends in this yeah. way, it's a lot less about the individual and more about the collective. Um, so I think that mo- as long as you're not a erratic defender. I think most defenders in this current setup would be fine with Tottenham. If it was the Spurs under Pochettino that were five or ten yards higher and you lost one of the key centre-backs and it is a bit more about how you defend as an individual as well as the unit, collective unit, then I'd probably be a bit more stressed about Odevara's injury. Mm. But in this setup, I think it's fine. I, I don't think it's a major issue him not being there. I really don't. I agree. I agree. Um, the, the question was interesting, um, saying would Pochettino have picked Davidson over Rodin? Because actually, I think... I think Roden's actually more suited to a Pochettino style than 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 Davinson Sanchez. To be honest, he's he's more competent in possession. He likes carrying the ball forward. Um, Roden's. I, I'm really. I, I I think this is a good signing for Spurs. Roden. I, I like it a lot. Uh, he's obviously not perfect. Yeah, he's a young player. He's not going to be. But he does have this kind of doggedness to his defensive game, which I'd like, whilst also being a competent ball playing centre back. Um, and that's that's the dream, isn't it? You want centre backs who can defend, but can also bring the ball out. That's that's a potentially very very valuable asset we've got there. Um, Bardi, I'm going to direct this one to you because you love you love the art of defending, being Italian. This was from um, Colby Canetta, and this came in post City, but I think he's still relevant now. Colby says, "Of course, I think we'd all rather see free flowing, beautiful football over the surrender the ball and counter strategy most of the time." But it's clear that that won't happen against the dominant possession-based sides. However, however, do you think there's still a level of appreciation and enjoyment found in watching a defensive game plan unfold so perfectly and be executed so well, as opposed to a beautiful 4-0 thrashing with wonder goals? Of course, both are great. But how did you guys all feel? Did you find that we actually de- did you find that you actually derived some enjoyment out of the City game rather than pure stress, nerves, fear? 
I mean, we've all been watching the Queen's Gambit. And as I was watching the, the game on Sunday, I was thinking, you know, like this is Sicilian defence, but this is, <clears> the Port- this is the Portuguese defence. <laughs> this is um, Jose cancelling out every single move that the Russian can pull on him. And um, he, he was able to, it was, it was a mastermind. I hate using that Mourinho masterclass mastermind. <laughs> but it, it, it was, that's what it was. And I do, I do get a lot of joy of watching a team perform Perform well and look like they know what they're doing. Of course, it's better if a if a team play beautifully with attacking patterns and stuff like that and score ten goals. That's incredible. But I still think there is a lot of joy to be had from watching defenders and midfielders fill spaces, make interceptions, and be controlled in the in the way that they defend. Everybody goes about oh how great scoring all these goals are, but a lot of time it's down to defensive mistakes. And the way that Spurs have cut out defensive mistakes is is something that I don't think we give enough credit to to Spur to to Jose and his coaching staff. We defend completely differently. Serge Aurier is um, is is like a different guy. Dyer still has his moments where he starts looking at the player instead of the ball, and you, you don't know where he's going to put a hand up or something else like that. But even him when um, who somebody twisted past him. In the first Abraham. half, yeah, Abraham, and it. I had, I think you said it as well, maybe on WhatsApp. That I thought he was going to knock him down, and I was shouted, "Don't, don't, don't, don't!" But yeah. he didn't do it. So maybe Hope he's growing. Flashbacks. Exactly. Maybe he's growing, and I, I get, I get pleasure from that. Yes, I do. Of course, winning four nil is better. And had I been at the stadium, I'd rather see us pump someone four nil than scrape one nil. But there is joy to be had. There, there is beauty in everything, and. I see beauty in that, and that makes me happy. Or what makes me happy is not losing, and we didn't lose. Buddy, you know what comes next? Uh, what's that, Wendy? Uh, Alex Sharon says, every pod you should ask the, would you take 38-1-0 victories to win the league question? <laughs> I've been on this I've been on this 38-1-0 for a long, long time. I would take it every day. You you win the league with yeah. a, a record amount of points, man. Come on. Be incredible. I, 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 I reckon I'll be able to guarantee, uh, convince you both to take 38-1-0s <laughs> under Jose Mourinho. And just by saying one thing, would you like to see Harry Kane win the Premier League? Oh, for That's the thing, isn't it? That is the thing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then when Harry Kane dies, we name White Hart Lane after Harry Kane, the <laughs> Harry Kane stadium. You know? It's, it's a really strong argument. It's a really very strong argument. I just want Kane to be happy. <laughs> because bearing in mind, if you don't win one of the big two, he maybe within this year or it may next two years, definitely, but maybe within this year, I think you've got to win at least one trophy this year, but mm. you've got to win one of the big two in the next two years. If I'm Harry Kane, I'll be honest, again, uh, people that are not going to like hearing this, I would have asked to leave already if I'm being him. Yeah, um, yeah. This is, I would have done. That's um, something that um, Josh King, who's also been on the podcast before, he said that to me in one of my WhatsApp groups, um, that Mourinho is, basically Mourinho is good because because of Kane, because Kane will stay longer. It's a now. strong and, argument. And it's hard to disagree. You know, if, you win, if you win one of the big two in the next two years, I think you probably keep Kane for the rest of his career. I think that Kane, as long as you win one of the big two, and then the odd FA Cup maybe, or a, I know you're talking like Spurs haven't won a trophy in however long, like talking that's going to happen. But if you do win one of the big two, I think you probably keep Kane for the rest of his career. Mm, I agree. I think, yeah. I don't think, I think he goes, yeah. I think he would like to go and win one of the big two. Well, of course, he would. Anybody would, but he—he's he, a. It's what was about when people say about winners and stuff. Kane's a winner. He just hasn't been at a winning club. That's a winning mindset, um, and he won't allow himself not to win trophies in his career. I really don't believe that. So, mm. slightly off topic there, but yeah, I think that would convince you two both to take thirty-eight one nils over a season. 
Or if Kane wins a World Cup, he stays at Spurs as well. But I'd, I, yeah, I'd rather see him win the league. I, 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 when we, when obviously the last World Cup, when he got to semi-finals, I actually said that as well. I thought if if they win the World Cup, then it does Spurs a world of good by being able to keep Kane for a lot longer because he's won the biggest trophy you can get. Um, so that not monkey off his back, but you know what I mean. So yeah, I agree oh, yeah. with that. Actually. Yeah. I have travelled to the crossroads at midnight and uh, in the haze the devil appears and offers me a deal that I cannot refuse. (laughs) Yeah, I feel the same way, Nathan. Uh Um, Bill Photo 3 says, is Ndombele now the most important player at Spurs for how we attack and transition? And Mittle says, how can we get 90 minutes of football out of Ndombele? As a coach, how do you go about getting a player fit enough to last 90 minutes of football in the Premier League? So I'm going to start off with with Nathan and then we'll get Harry to answer the coaching question from Mittle. Um, Ndombele was brilliant again. I I didn't think he needed to come off in 60 minutes. He didn't look... And actually, I was going to do some number crunching because I looked briefly at his his data on Opta and he had the highest average speed in the 11 and the distance covered was like ridiculously high for a 60 minute stint. So mm. he was he was physically doing all the things he needed to do. And he didn't seem to be blowing particularly. And he seemed really disappointed when he got taken off. But um, Nathan, is he the most important player at Spurs for how we attack? Uh, no, but I would happily place him on par with Kane and Son. And I think you have to take a step back and think about how brilliant those players are and yeah. what a compliment it is to be compared with them, you know? Uh, so yeah, no, I think that he is, he's, he's doing just as important things as those two are in deeper area than those two are most of the time anyway. Um, and then yeah, the fitness thing is interesting because it's like, uh, as I think that you're sort of getting towards, it's maybe not so much that he doesn't still isn't, he doesn't still have the sort of the necessary fitness to complete 90 minutes. I think he's pretty much about match fit by now, but also we're playing two, three games a week mm-hmm. and we need him so much because he, again, because he's at that level of Kane and Son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a really good point. Harry, do you have any thoughts on, on the fitness aspect? Um, yeah, I'm not an expert in terms of conditioning, um, with regards to that, um, in terms of the way I coach, but I know enough to say that, you know, he probably is a match fitness now. If he is a slightly off it, I'd be surprised. But what also needs to be appreciated is, as Nathan just said, and, you know, you said is that there are so many games, minutes have to be managed. Um, you can't afford to have him injured. And also every individual has, um, their physical capacity, no matter how much work they do, um, and Dombele is a very explosive player over bursts. Generally speaking, those players don't really last the distance in terms of doing that repetitively all game, all game, every game. Those players don't, those ones. Um, it's very not, it's not many players that can do that consistently. And that could just be Ndombele ceiling in terms of fitness. And there's nothing you can do about that. Everyone has their body type. Everyone has their physique. Um, and everyone has their capacity in terms of what they can endure. Um, and Dombley, to me, must surely be at his optimum in terms of fitness levels. It might mean that he can't simply do as much running at high intensity as, say, a um, an Aaron Ramsey. Oh, that's way out there, but that's a great example for me. Um, him, um, who can do that again and again and again consistently. Um, or a Jordan Henderson, perhaps. You know, those kind of players. So, And that's fine. That's it. So maybe you do have to manage Ndombele's, um fitness more because also it wouldn't surprise me as well when you look at his just his body frame and his type and his physical attributes. He's a freak of nature. It's ridiculous. Like how, I mean, it doesn't really make sense. It's, it's, it, I said it yesterday. It's completely unique. I've never seen a player ever that has 
his uniqueness all matched into one in terms of physicality, um, the way you can get low to the ground and turn and twist and completely change direction and not lose any balance, as well as the technical and footwork aspects, as well as the um, creative um, genius, uh, you know, upstairs in his mind. I've never seen a player has a, has that unique mix of all three in one, and that's him. He's he's a fabulous player, um, and it would be a disaster if Spurs lost him. So yeah, I agree. Manages minutes. Um, there will be games when he completes 90 minutes as well, but I thought it was the right thing yesterday. He played on Thursday. Bring him off on 60. You're bringing on a pretty good player as well, who actually didn't play. He probably had his worst game in the Spurs show. He was terrible. He was yeah, really didn't terrible. play well at all. Um, and that's aside from the the, the the chance at the end. He was bad before that. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's a very, very good player who you're bringing on. It's not like you're bringing on someone that's going to completely negate Spurs' threat. So, no. Um, does that answer your question? <laughs> it does, yeah. No, I think there's also something else with Ndombele in terms of um, of how tired he gets. And, and that is that it's really gruelling for players who are constantly in battles. You know, he's, yeah. he takes so much more contact than most other midfield yeah. players because he's con- he wants to feel players so that he can then worm his way around them. Uh, and he gets taken down a lot. So you constantly go getting up and down. It sounds like a small thing, but that's going to take its toll. I, I'd done a session earlier today with a player um, younger than Dombele, um, 18 years old, and he's an academy player. Um, and it was a fitness session today. And the longer distance stuff, the driving, the longer distance running, and even the intense running and the sprints, he found okay. What he really struggled with the fitness-wise was the twisting and turning over smaller spaces where you are constantly under that sharp, um, sharp movements and intense movements, which exhaust the legs, bending your knees, um, breaking out from those gaps, tussling with your upper body. They are what exhausted him today. Um, so yes, 100%. Those explosive burst players, um, generally speaking, their fitness needs to be managed a bit more. It would be really interesting to go back and look at how many 90s he's completed in um, his previous clubs. I, I might do that, actually. Just cast an eye over. Sl- sl- slower teams. league, though. Slower league. It true. Has, yeah, slower league. True. It makes a huge difference. You are, in, in, in France, you will get times when it's uh, you can be more measured on the ball and a bit more chilled. Every time receive, the Dombele receives the ball, everybody knows his threat. Everybody knows his threat. Every time Dumbly receives it, you've got players that are doing everything they can to try and stop him turning and get that mm-hmm. ball going forward. So he's constantly under that intense scrutiny from really athletic players. I mean, it must be a nightmare having someone like Mason Mount, I mean, and playing against players like that and Kante that are constantly snapping away at you. Face. So, yeah, yeah it's tough. So, yeah, they, they need to be measured more. Um, and that's fine if he doesn't complete the 90 minutes. That's fine as long as you've got good players coming off the bench to... to, to um, they're not going to replace what he does. Nobody can, but, you know, not lose too much. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, we're going to get stuck into some more questions, but first, Nathan has a question for Harry. Yeah, it's, so it's related to sort of the fitness questions. But um, so Harry does regular uh, Twitter Q and As, or uh, uh, you should you should follow him; they're really good. And uh, I very I can't remember what it was that prompted it, but I I I nearly got drawn into asking him a question on Twitter the other day, and I thought, hang on a second, no, I'm I'm recording with him on Monday. Uh, essentially, the question is just like, what would you do if you were Klopp? But let me sort of explain that a little bit, which is like, um, this season, and as we've been talking about, there's this he- ridiculous, ridiculous schedule that is not you know safe for footballers, but that is what we're faced yeah. with. Uh, and it seems like, obviously, um, the teams who played the most physically intensive styles of football, especially pressing football, are the teams who are struggling the most, having the most injuries and having the hardest time um, enacting their style. Mm-hmm. Um, Liverpool especially, absolutely dropping like flies, muscle injuries all over the place. We've had this short pre-season, the season's going to be long, uh, international football throughout and, and quarantine travel restrictions, all this kind of stuff. So it's such a, such a grueling season. If you're Jurgen Klopp or even Pep or if Pochino was in practice right now, whoever, um, or maybe even Hassan Hussle, who who's having more success but is playing far fewer games. How would you approach this season tactically, given the the challenges of the season? That for me is why Jose is still king, because Jose can adapt to any kind of situation. We I, I talked to my colleague Richard quite a bit. If you if you just shook all the teams up in the league and there was just a random bunch of players like you have these players you might have a left back from Burnley a centre mid from Spurs a striker from West Brom whatever and you had Klopp Mourinho and Guardiola you take Mourinho all day long because they can adapt to situations and this is a scenario this season where you have to adapt what you do you have to because as you said the players physically can't take it it's it's irresponsible but we knew it was always going to be the case because you know the TV companies and all the money in football always rules all mm. which is a lot of nonsense but that's another that's another discussion um but um yeah it's one of those where you have to adapt your style otherwise expect to keep getting muscle injuries um and if I'm Jose Mourinho and they say there's a there's a vote and if I really believe I'm winning the league I'm going to be a bastard and say no I don't want the five subs I'm going to, I don't want the five subs rule because I know yeah. my tactics will at least um reduce the chances of these injuries let's let these guys who aren't going to change their way um call it ignorant call it whatever you want um call it call it call it good it's fine you know you can have opinion on that it's obviously very successful for both of them but they've left themselves the chance this year and they've left themselves open to these injuries and um yeah if they continue to try to play this intense style of football they either have to consistently rest big key players as you saw with Mane um on Saturday versus Brighton or adapt what you do it's one of those two things. Otherwise, it's going to carry on the way you're, by the way it's going. Players can't cope with it. Players can't cope with this this schedule. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's it, for me. It shouldn't be allowed. Actually, it really shouldn't. I was all, I was against the five subs rule before, um, purely because I thought you know I just I was just against. It. I thought it favoured the big clubs, and I was like, hang on, mm. you work with these athletes, you know, you know what it's like for them. Um, and right now, it, it, their bodies are being so badly damaged by this. There was a study on it. Age guy, I can't remember who done it, and I think it was like if you play a ninety minute game 
and they'll run certain distance and so many sprints. It's actually physically impossible for your body to be any more than 70% recovered by Thursday or mm. Wednesday or something. There's something like that. It's physically impossible. So if you're constantly playing Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, Thursday, whatever, your, your body's going to break down. They can't cope with it. So yeah, yeah, Nathan, they have to adapt. Otherwise, it's going to keep happening. Um, but that what that's not going to happen. There's not a chance they're going to adapt. Not a chance. Mm-hmm. They'll keep getting injuries. That's um, that's interesting. It's, it's it's probably why we've started seeing Mourinho rotate more in the Europa yeah. League again because he went through a phase of basically not rotating or rotating two knew, or three players. Yeah, I think I think he couldn't take any chances with not getting into the Europa League. Yeah, um, he had to get into the Europa League and not take yeah. any risks. Uh, that's why you even saw Hugo Lloris start some of the the playoff games, didn't he? I mean. Because I can't take any risks, but yeah, he he understands that the it's a it's a it's a freak season, no preseason, freak schedule. So if you don't rotate those plays, they'll break down. Yeah, I'm glad you said uh, the name Hugo Lloris then, because I did want to just mention how good that save was. Mm. Um, Sky were having a few little little jibes at Lloris. I noticed in commentary, mm. Neville and uh, and Tyler were both a few pointed remarks. I thought, and Neville even said that he was quite slow down to that Nathan um, Mason Mount chance. But I thought it was a brilliant save. I really did. It was such a strong hand on his on his slightly weaker side as well. It was fantastic. Uh, okay, we'll get stuck into the questions now. Well, I was going to say, actually, before you go Sorry, on, on the, re- the reason why people might think he looks slow there is because it was kind of a near post shot from Mount. And usually mm. people, aesthetically, people think, oh, that should be a comfortable save. It's kind of a near post shot. Um, so because it actually looked like quite a hard save, people think, oh, hang on, has he, has he made that look difficult? But it was a very difficult save. It was a great save. Um, it was just, I think, more because of the aesthetic of it, um, why people might say that. Because it was technically a near post shot, wasn't it? Really, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It wasn't going across goal. So yeah, I think that's that. It's a really good point. I mean, to be honest, the ball was travelling at some speed, and he had limited time to get down to. It. I thought he did really well. I was very impressed. It's worked. It's great save. Um, we we had an absolute ton of questions. We're not going to be able to use them all, so we're going to save some of them for future podcasts and perhaps X subs Q and A. In fact, it's a good time to plug the um, X subs Q and A because we did. A live Q&A last week after recording the podcast. It was so much fun. And really good uh, to hear live from, from some of our ex-subs and have a bit of a chat with them. Really, really good fun. Um, start off with this one for Harry from Chris HP. He says, please explain Harry's love for all things Scott McTominay. Preferably <laughs> in an adversarial setup. Um, so, <laughs> Harry, I quite like Scott McTominay as well. No. I don't. I think Nathan is not. <laughs> There's your adversary. Yeah. So go on, Harry. De- defend Scott McTominay. Uh, right. Okay. So where do we go? Um, I think he's. I think he's very good at almost everything um he's seven and eight out of ten to almost everything and i think there's a place for those in foot in football i don't think it's a surprise that man united's best run came when fred and mctominay provided a solid base to build from and structure i think he's good at actually a very good passer with the ball he punches it forward um he's got a nasty streak to him which is a good thing um very athletic very fit um he can um run ahead of the ball as well um he can play behind the ball um which is really important i think for midfielders to learn how to do um and he can contribute in all phases of play um so no don't expect him to be a player where everything goes through and he's going to come up with magic and wonderful flair but expect him to be your jordan henderson style player not in terms of like the attributes but in terms of what they offer to a team that discipline that consistency that structure that 
solid base to, to come off from. Um, and yeah, obviously, I don't think it would happen. But, you know, if you're looking for a Sissoko replacement and if there's, I think he would be about as ideal as it could get if there was ever a deal that could happen. But I don't think it will. But um, but no, I do like him. I do like him. Yeah. You can't make a you can't make an omelette without a little bit of salt. And Scott McTominay is <laughs> salt. He's that ingredient that makes something. I'm not a huge fan, but I agree with Harry. You need... You need a workhorse. You need a player who can just do a little bit of everything. Uh, yeah, I, I do think he does get unfairly bashed by Man United fans. But then I, I also agree that he probably isn't, the, you know, he's not Donny van der Beek. He's not going to unlock and unpick defences. But he, every, football teams need, the reason why these guys make it as professionals at clubs like Man United and Sissoko gets games for France and for Spurs is because you need, you need that little bit of salt in your dish. And Manu fans should know this more than most because they've always had a player that does that. They've literally, yeah. like every successful United team has had the player that does the work. If Matic was five years younger, McTominay wouldn't be getting a look in, I don't yeah. think. Well, he's not getting a look in at the moment, is he? <laughs> and maybe that's part go. of the problem with them. Then we go back to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, fair Nathan, a question from um, Matt, who is Harry G23. He says, is Serge Aurier better than Matt Doherty? Hmm. Mm, he certainly has the highest ceiling because of his athletic and technical abilities. And uh, we have se- what I'll say is what we've seen from Sergio recently is um, probably at a level higher than Doherty is is capable of. Uh, the problem is that a season and this season especially is a thousand games long. And 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 is Sergio going to keep playing like that week in week out? I mean, it's possible. It's possible that he's turned the corner, that this is the player that he's going to be from now on. Uh, it's also possible that this is just a nice couple of running games for him and things are working out for him and Soko is defending the inside channel and and um, we are minutes away from his next defensive calamity. But whilst I think on top of that, I'll say like he's earned one. I'll give him a pass on the next one. <laughs> based on his, his yeah, yeah. No, so I, I think that's a good point. I think it's a good point. He's definitely in his best um, spell of form for Spurs, I would yeah. say. I, I don't think I've seen Aurier put together two matches as good as that in his Spurs career. Very impressive. Not just defensively this time. I mean, we were, we were very um, full of praise for his defensive performance against City. This time, his creative passing was decent as well. Not that there were many creative moments. I'm not going to sort of exaggerate and pretend that he was you know, tearing up the right-hand side and delivering game-changing passes all game. But when he did have those few moments, he made really sensible pass selections. And that is, yep. that's really important. Really but pass, smart pass selections out from his own defensive third as well, which is like maybe for a fullback the the most underrated thing, you know. Um, and just not so, it's always like there are a couple of times where like he played a really smart play under pressure out in his defensive third, and I thought was that Sergio? And I said, <laughs> yeah. like said aloud, I was like, oh, smart play from Sergio, you know, which is which is the best thing to see from him, essentially. Uh, there was also that really comical moment where Musa Sissoko had a complete fresh air shot. Sergio <laughs> then just sort of fires in a ludicrous volley from about 35 yards. But then it bounces back and he has a really smart one too and gets a decent shot away. And, and I was, at that point, I was a bit like, wow, Ori- there's Aurier popping up in the in the D having a shot. is actually really quite decent. Um, <laughs> that, that air shot by Sissoko was something of beauty. Someone needs to clip that up. That was incredible. <laughs> It was a good fake. Uh, <laughs> Harry, you, you've always been more positive about Sergio Aurier. Did you sort of see this coming from him? Or you th- did you think that this was always on the table? Um, I was positive in terms of what he's capable of doing. Um, but don't get me wrong. Um, there are certain things that I cannot stand about his game. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to be measured there, but I can't say it any other way. Uh, 
he's for so me one of sometimes. it's just yeah and that's a very difficult thing to get out of someone you're not it's hard to not have that rashness but fair play to him he seems to focus himself more um he's one of only maybe I'm trying to think of other right backs in the league Pereira maybe Lancy but probably not maybe only two right backs in the league I think that can dominate the entire flank I don't even think listen Trent Alexander-Arnold is better than him um but even Alexander Arnold can't dominate the entire flank. When Ori is on top of his game, he can literally just run that entire flank defensively and going forward. Um, so yeah, yeah, it does have qualities. Um, if I got hold of him as a coach, I would do a t- just a ton of work on just being smoother on the ball, variety of crossing because it's very wooden. His yeah. technique, he just looks un- physically uncomfortable with his technical work. Um, he just can't cross t- on the run, can he? It's just, it just, it's because his body's, he's not natural with it. It's wooden, so he has to set himself to then just stiffen his leg and just. That's why when it and Mo Salah is quite similar actually. Mo Salah isn't amazing technically. If you look at when Mo Salah, um, he's, he's got a similar ball striking technique to to Aurier that is very stiff in the sense of if you go and look at Mo Salah's um, goals in the top corner, his foot stays quite closed off. He can't open up and caress it. Um, he has to really stiffen his leg and just sort of go through it quite unnaturally or he looks unnatural and Ori is the same with crossing he has to stiffen his leg and just sort of swing right around it um because he just he's un- he's incapable of doing it any other way um so but he does have a lot of a lot to his game that's a massive asset and fair play to him he's been excellent this year excellent really good really good and I, th- I agree with Nathan in terms of um his ceiling he offers more than what Doherty can do Doherty can't give a performance like that not like that. Maybe yesterday he could be. He can't give a performance where he dominates the entire flank. He, he certainly doesn't have the same um, level of athleticism as no. Aurier. But no. but Doherty brings other qualities as well yeah, that yeah. I think yeah. that, will, that will come to the fore as the season goes on. I, I think we've not seen the best of Doherty yet by any stretch. I think he'll contribute some goals this season as well. Um, so Jack S, who is Johannes 13 Coys on uh, Twitter, he wants to hear us talk about Sissoko. And what value he gives to us on transitions and turnovers. We also had other questions about Sissoko. So Richard Joyce said, should we tactically change midfield depending on opponents? Sissoko feels essential against the best teams and superfluous against the worst. Is there a case for Lacelso against teams that sit back and Sissoko versus stronger attacks with Lacelso being moved to the front three? Front three. And then, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you answer to that and, one. And then Aidan Scott says, I think the Chelsea game highlighted a need to be able to control possession in order to relieve themselves from sustained periods of pressure. How do they achieve this when Sissoko isn't comfortable in possession and Winks requires particular setups and opponents? So lots of sort of similar questions there about how we best use the options available in midfield. I'll start with Bardi. Um, Bardi, how do, I mean, we've gone over the Celso or Sissoko question a few times, but obviously Sissoko's performed pretty well against City and Chelsea. I mean, he's not been one of the outstanding performers, but he's, he's stuck to his task really well and been part of a, a solid midfield combination. Where do you go from here? I mean, I think um, Sissoko's form is the biggest reason why Ndombele doesn't get past 60 minutes because Jose doesn't feel like he can break up the Hjoiberg-Sissoko partnership. So the the option is to take off Ndombele and, and try Lo Celso there. So I think that's a big reason why he's not finishing games. I've been... I've been relatively happy in these games, how he's played. Um, I do agree when 
Burnley, Burnley's probably the only team that I would place Sissoko in that I expect us to have more of the ball just because the way they, they throw roast potatoes at our heads and we have to deal with the the way they play. But everybody else, when we when we get through this run of fixtures, when we go to Palace away, I would like us to see I would like to see Le Celso and Dombele and Schoiberg try that because we're gonna have a lot of the ball and I think we're gonna we're gonna need guys who, who can who can who can dribble past and, and pick a pass. But um I think he's been fine. Um yeah, I think he's been fine. You can't I can't complain about him. He's been good. Harry, Sissoko is obviously, to some degree, the, the glue that holds the squad together off the pitch. I mean, he's very popular off the pitch, not just uh, on the Uno table, but, you know, he's very close mates with Aurier and Ndombele as well. Very popular, as you could see from the All or Nothing documentary, influential, in fact, in the in the dressing room. But is he is he the glue on the pitch as well? Yeah, I do think you need him. I don't, I'll be honest, even against the smaller teams, unless you're chasing and desperate for a goal, I don't think you do start Hoybier and Dombele and um, Le Celso because this isn't a rule, but generally speaking, the magic number is five in terms of behind the ball to make sure you're covered for transitions and recycling the ball. Um, if you play Hoybier and Dombele and Le Celso, and Aurier and Reggie on, then that's a lot of people just going that way. Um, and not enough, not a much players that like doing the covering and like doing the discipline work. Yes, you can say Lo Celso can do that, but that's not that's not how he sees the game. That's not what Lo Celso sees the game. You know, it's important to take into account how everyone can say, well, he can do that because he can run and he's disciplined and he does track back in. Yes, he does. But that's not how Lo Celso sees the game. Lo Celso sees the game in terms of, yes, he'll make breakneck recovery tackles, but he's not the disciplined cover. He's not that player. So Soko will do that. And if you have all of those players playing, then you're leaving Hoybier, Dyer, and let's say Alderweireld to potential transitions. Do you want to leave them three to transitions, even against the smaller teams? I, I don't. I really don't. You need his athleticism, his discipline to cover it. Even having four is a risk a lot of the time. So yes, it's, it, it, it's a thing that a lot of fans would like to see. I'd like to see if it could work. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a risk that Jose will take, and I don't think it's a risk that he should take um, unless you're chasing the game. The ideal is that you find someone that will do Sissoko's role, but is cleaner on the ball. That's yeah. why I think you're seeing. I, I, they've been linked with like Sabitza. I think that he could actually be that player. I know he's often been used higher up the pitch. I think he's actually that intelligent workaholic footballer that would actually wouldn't mind doing that and then that's different so if you can find a player that can do that disciplined role but is cleaner on the ball than Sissoko is then that's a winning combination but I just don't see how Hoybier Sissoko um Hoybier and Dombele Lo Celso works unless you play more unless you play fullbacks like Ben Davis and Tanganga um at least one of them then maybe then maybe it's a really, really interesting point because you're right. Mourinho always likes to have a certain number of players behind the ball. I, mean, I, think, I think all managers do even. I even think that Pep won't take unnecessary risks. Yeah. Pep doesn't want to leave himself to open to transitions. Um, every manager deals with it in a different way. Um, I don't believe in defensive or attacking managers. Every manager wants to be successful in attack and every manager wants to be successful in defence. And it's how they work out the best of both with the units, with the players they have. Um, so I don't think any manager would like to see their team leaving three players just on, you know, and especially three players that aren't exactly blessed with athleticism or pace. Mm. You know, I don't think Dyer's not slow, but he's um, he's not quick on the turn. So, um, no, I think that's a risk that you're not going to really see um, to disappoint some Spurs fans, in my opinion. So, so, so Sissoko 
could be seen as someone who almost sort of compensates for lack of agility and, and pace in other areas of a team where we've got weaknesses. So, so maybe maybe if Roden were to become more of a permanent fixture, that might even have an influence on the on the midfield pairing as well because Roden's a bit that bit quicker. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated to see Lo Celso get that chance though because. I just want to see if it'll work. I mean, because mm. if it does work, if the Celso can be disciplined enough, it just offers so much more in possession and it, it would make things very interesting. I it's think. easy to say for us guys here, though, but when you're being paid to make these decisions and yeah. your job's on the line, you know, you can say that Crystal Palace are a smaller team or West Brom, but they're still a Premier League team. They have massive threats. And like, yeah. is it really... Put it this way, do you back your talent? Let's say you do have Hoybier, Reguillon, uh, Aurier... Um, Soko, the, the typical team we've seen in the last few weeks, Bale or Bergwijn, whoever, do you back those players on the pitch to show enough to still create chances against teams that sit back? I think that, yeah, you do. You still back those players to create enough, but at least you still have that sense of security. Um, because if you do get broken on that transition and you go one nil down against those sides, that's very difficult to then break down, especially if you're not a team that's as um, structured in terms of how they create chances, I suppose a lot's left to a lot is left to. There are there are certain structures, but a lot is left to individualism mm-hmm. um, and you know players being in sync with each other. Um, so you know Nathan said a few times, you're not really a t- we're not really a team that suits going one nil down against our sides too well. Um, so yeah, next season it's not a problem because we've got Oliver Skip coming back. <laughs> hey. Can I can I attempt to sort of rephrase the situation a little better, uh, or not not a little better, but like a little more optimistically for for Harry? D- do you think that it is possible for us to get uh, Ndombele and Lacelso to be sort of in sync with each other and not push forwards when the other one is ahead? Do you, do you think it's possible to achieve a, a situation in which they they develop that kind of smart relationship and, and, and play safe in that kind of way. Which one's Gerard and which one's Lampard? Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say that, yeah. It's possible, but let's say, but then you're not getting the best out of either of them. You might as well just have okay. someone else there, I think. I think that one, you, I think the one, what I think the way you do get them into a team is if you go for a double pivot and then have Lacelso as a 10 or Lacelso on the right in a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1, 4-2-2, yeah. whatever you want to call it, you know. Um, my opinions on formations is for another day, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think Lacelso on the right is um, probably the only way or a ten that we're going to see it. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, I which really I wouldn't mind doing. I, I'd like. Right. I, I wouldn't mind seeing Lacelso on the right. Certainly yeah. wouldn't mind that. I agree. I agree. But uh, but having said that, I've been perfectly happy with Bergvine as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I just don't want Lacelso to get fed up of not playing. That's like I I think he's so good, and I do think we're I do think to some degree there's a, there's a waste of talent there with him sat on the bench. But hopefully that you know hopefully he'll come into the team and get plenty of games, and it won't be an issue. That's that's the that's what we have to hope for. I think if Lacelso was a slightly different profile of player um, that perhaps adjusted his tempo more. He'd be more likely to play more with Ndombele because Lacelso is someone that is so direct and dynamic. It's yeah. 100 miles an hour all the time. Yeah. Whereas if you have someone more like a Jack Grealish who will put his foot on the ball, or a Modric, or those kind of players who put his foot on the ball, then you can play them with Ndombele because then you're giving enough time for the rest of the team to get structure around what you do. Whereas if it's always forward, 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 go, mm-hmm. go, go, you're leaving yourself open to transitions a lot. And you need to have more than Hoybier, Dyer, and 
out of order Roden to deal with those transitions. Well, that was the problem against Chelsea when the Celso came on. <clears throat> Everything was very hurried. He gave the ball away uh, an awful yeah. lot, more than I've seen him give the ball away previously. And it, you felt like he was sent on with the instruction of try, you know, try and make some counterattacks happen. And so he was trying to force things, and it just wasn't working for him. He can't. He can't adapt his tempo. It's not how he plays. He's. He's actually, for me, I've said it a lot, he's a lot closer to Lamella than Christian Eriksen. He's nothing like Christian Eriksen. Christian Eriksen can play with angles all around him. Um, he can change the tempo of the game on the ball. Um, Lo Celso can't do that. He's very direct, has to go, has to go immediately. So, it, yeah, I don't see him and Dombley Hoybier being a regular thing. Interesting, interesting. Um, we've, we've run really long in this podcast, but I, I'm keen to just get this one in because it's, it's something that I want to talk to Harry about. It's about Sessegnon, and this is from Mohamed Surti. So Mohamed says, having seen him play for Hoffenheim, he's still very low on confidence and barely assertive in his play. My question is, can confidence be coached into a player to last forever or for a character like like Ryan? Does he need a constant arm around the shoulder to build and solidify his confidence? And he's, he specifically says, I remember Tony Poulis doing similar with Adama at Borough. You can um, create the setup that encourages that um, change in mentality but it's always going to be down to the player himself you can't force them to do that it's with all due respect it's down and that can it can seem like quite a harsh way to say it Cecil Young has to become assertive himself mm. it shouldn't you know he's, he's got to get to that stage everyone everyone responds differently to different things arm around the shoulder um, a bollocking um, sometimes both but it's also very important to understand that players also can't be mollycoddled as well they have to take ownership of what they do as well you can't just rely on the club or the manager and kind of get tied to that and think oh we never put his arm around my shoulder never made me feel good well okay if you want to make the best of your career you've got to do something about that son um and he's done he's made a big step with doing that by going out to germany that takes that takes balls he's a young man and he's gone to live abroad it takes balls to do that so fair play to him um but the assertiveness yes you can create an environment um it can be done in loads of ways i don't know assessing on personally I've always had an issue with his lack of assertiveness on a pitch. Um, very, very good footballer. Very good technically. Very intelligent. Very got good athletic attributes. Just isn't quite that aggressive, just get it done nasty kind of player. Um, and that's got to come from him. That's got to come from him. Um, yeah. So, so the good thing I would say is that I would say Kyle Walker-Peters was in a very, very similar mindset yeah. literally yes. a year ago. And look at him now. You know, I, blame it's possible, I do blame the club for that. I don't know the situation, but like Pochettino is at fault for that, for not letting go out and get minutes. I don't know the situation. For all we know, Kyle Walker-Peters wanted to stay the whole time. But... Like, you know, Kyle Walker-Peters got to whatever age and had barely played any men's football. I'd always use the example of Walker-Peters. It's like whenever you saw him on a men's pitch, it was like a talented academy player that hadn't yet learned how to play grown-up football and the nasty side of it. And that comes, and that's a big issue with academy football in this country. Um, and it isn't helped when players are just kept along um, mm. without getting out there and getting that exposure. So I think if Walker-Peters had gotten that exposure elsewhere one or two, two years earlier... You'd probably see him playing for Tottenham now, actually. Yeah, I think so as well. And I'm, I'm really pleased to see him doing so well at Southampton. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. he's clearly a very talented player. Lovely, but... lovely, lovely young man as well, actually. I remember yeah. I was I was lucky enough to go into... Um, when I was actually studying sports journalism before um, before I was 
became a football coach and uh, I knew John McDermott through someone and uh, went to go interview him and uh, just went into the breakfast table and um, into the breakfast room, sorry. And uh, Cole Walker-Peters would have been 16, maybe 17 at that time. And uh, he actually purposely got up from his chair and his seat to come over to me, shake my hands and saying, oh, good morning, sir. How are you? And oh, just like a really, him. really nice young man and man. And you could tell that. And I saw him walking around a bit that day and really good, good heart. Yeah, nice young boy. I, hope, I really hope he does well because he's a talent as well. That's nice. That's really nice to hear. I, I think um, Sessegnon needs to look to someone like Walker Peters as an example. Um, mm. He's a little bit younger. Uh, obviously, he's played a lot more football than Walker Peters, but he's in a similar position, I think, in terms of his own self-belief and self-confidence. Yeah. Uh, and it shows that it can you can get over that over that hump. It's, it's very possible. 100%. Harry, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I'm sure we'd like to have you back on at some point uh, in the future. You're, you're an asset. To, to any <laughs> podcast you're on with your with your knowledge um and thank you for being ex sub as well it's uh it's great to have someone in the ex sub community with your with your knowledge um of coaching no thanks for having me back on you guys do a brilliant job so no, it's an absolute pleasure to, to chat to you guys no thank you for having me on nice one thank you very much and to bardy and nathan i shall speak to you both next week bye bye you've been listening to the extra inch thanks to nathan a clark for production thanks to bardy for being italian Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindmer for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his SoundCloud D Lindmer. Do check him out, he's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.